Our scripture reading today is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, I used to really look forward to Christmas and birthdays. And then the kiddos grew up and went away and I don't, really look forward to Christmas quite so much anymore. And now that I'm at this stage in my life and I have a birthday every six weeks, I don't really <laughs> I don't really look forward to those much anymore. But to tell you what, I look forward to this day every year when we have our students back. I know that you guys were back on campus last weekend, but you had a service over on campus and so it's so good to have our returning students back and incoming freshmen and we're just delighted that you're here with us this morning and we hope that We'll be able to help you with your, your, with your walk with God and your spiritual growth this year. Thank you for being here, all of you. We appreciate your presence so very much. The ancient writer Plutarch wrote the following story in his work entitled Parallel Lives of Illustrious Greeks and Romans. According to the story, two Romans go to look at the dead body of a friend of theirs. Don't worry, it gets better. One of them, as he observes the body, says, Our friend can't be dead because his hands and his feet and his arms and his legs are all here. And the other Roman agreed. And so they proceeded to get behind him, behind the corpse, and putting their hands on, on his shoulder blades, they pushed him up, held him, and then they released their hands so that he could stand up. Of course, you're already a step ahead. You know exactly what happened. He didn't stand up. He fell back into his death-like pose. One of the Romans then commented, there must be something missing on the inside. Jesus told this parable that Ray just read from Luke chapter 12. I hope you'll keep your Bible open there. Because in this passage that constitutes our text, he's telling about a man who had his hands, his arms, his legs, his head, his torso. Everything was there. The problem was there was something missing on the inside. And Jesus said that a man who hasn't grown rich toward God has put the wrong thing at the center of his life, and therefore, he's very foolish. In fact, this is one of the very few Bible passages where God actually calls someone a fool, and he does with this particular man who is the subject of this parable. I remember hearing about a university student whose major was nuclear physics. That kind of makes my head hurt just thinking about it. But not only was that his major, but he had a 4.0 grade point average in his four years at UCLA, and he came into the office of a minister and an adjunct professor who taught some classes there on campus. 
and said to that minister, he said, in a few days, I'm going to be graduating from university. And I enjoyed your class. I've, I've learned a lot from it. I've gotten a lot out of it. But as I leave this university, he said, my problem is that I'm leaving four years later with the same three questions that I had when I came here. And the preacher said, tell me what those questions are. And he said, before I came to the university, I wanted to know who I am. I wanted to know how can I best live my life. And I wanted to know what my purpose is. And he continued, he said, I appreciate my education here very much, more than you'll ever know. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't have any real answer to any of those three questions yet. And they talked for a few minutes. And the preacher then told the young man of his own faith in Christ and how that he had followed him for quite a number of years and he opened the Bible to him. And probably for the one of the first times in that young man's life, anybody had ever opened the Bible to talk to him about what that word says. And he said that he read this parable with that young man. And then another passage that we'll mention in just a few moments later. But those three questions asked by that bright young man can comprise, I think, the three most important questions that any person can ever ask during the course of his or her life. This particular set of questions haunts each of us at some time in our life, and if it doesn't, it ought to. We need to be asking ourselves these questions because we need to be able to deal with life in a realistic fashion. And these three questions help us to lock in on what life is really all about. And the parable of the rich fool here in Luke chapter 12 helps us to think about the meaning of our lives and specifically to think about those three questions. You see, more and more in our time, there are individuals who have placed at the center of their lives something other than faith in the eternal. And we'll be talking about those options in the next few minutes as well. But then when their souls are required of them, they find that something is missing on the inside. And I don't want that to happen to anybody in this audience. I don't want that to happen to anybody in the world. God has given us this information to help us to be able to see reflected in our own existence and our own mind how important it is to make sure that our life priorities are in the right place and that we really are majoring in the right things and not majoring in the minors as we can easily do when we go through life. So let's look at those questions. The first question I want us to ask is, who am I? And that's an obvious question that everybody needs to be asking. We need to be in touch with our, our own identity. We know, need to know who it is that we are and, and, most important, what our role is as we walk through this life. Someone reportedly was uh, talking to the actor from way back, Marlon Brando, and when they saw him on a movie set, they asked the perfunctory uh, opening question in many conversations, and that is, how are you doing? And to his surprise, Marlon's response was, how in the world should I know how I'm doing when I don't even know who I am? And that just tells us, I think, that it doesn't matter how much fame and how much money and how much popularity that you may have if you're not in touch with your own identity. You don't really have a sense of who it is that you are as you occupy some space here on planet Earth. You know, one way our culture defines who we are is by our occupation. We say, oh, I'm a plumber, or I'm a teacher, or maybe I'm retired, or I'm a homemaker, I'm a businesswoman, I'm an electrician, or I'm a student. But are we not more than electricians? Is there not something more to our lives than just the role that we fill as, as a homemaker? Are we not more than just students? Is who we are really not more than our work? Does our work define us? 
Do we think in terms of my life existence and my purpose here on earth in terms of what I do for a living? Does our work really fill those vital needs inside of us that Jesus was talking about to the rich farmer in our text? Is who we really are not something more than our work? Is our work an end within itself or it is, is it a means to an end? So we need to ask ourselves, is defining ourselves in light of or in reference to our work really valid? Others have, I think, very dangerously defi defined identity as the sum total of life's experiences. So you are the amalgamation of everything that you have done and everything that you've experienced in life. You know, modern men and women have been led to believe that a person is but a highly complex, conditional animal who responds to certain kinds of stimuli. That particularly is the naturalistic explanation of why we do what we do. But when a person responds enough, according to this line of thinking... It conditions him or her so that they always respond to a set of stimuli in certain ingrained ways. It's almost like you would program a computer. If you got the right information that you can feed into that computer, at least in theory, you're going to get the right response out. And, and a lot of people think that that's the way human beings were created or that that's the way that we're made. That's how we're wired. But is there not more to us than the sum total of our past experiences? Is there not more to us than just a routine, a rut maybe, in which we live our lives and in which we respond to that stimuli in predetermined ways? I'm just saying who I am is one of the most critical questions of meaning that a person can ever ask. And if you never ask that question, you need to begin asking it. But then the second question that the young man asked of the preacher that day is one that I want us to give a little bit of attention to. And it needs to be asked by all of us, and that is how can I handle my life? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing while I'm here on this planet? How are we able to cope? How are we able to face our existence? And if you stay in touch with the news at all, you know that there are a lot of people who have lost touch with why they need to be here. And so they're opting out. Our culture tells us that much the same thing as the rich man in this parable in Luke 12 believed. And that is if you really want to make it in life, then what you need to do is to put material things at the center of your existence. It's kind of a he who dies with the most toys wins philosophy. And I don't have to tell you that there are a lot of people in this world who bought into that. They believe that if we've got more stuff than the person who lives next to us or the person down the road, if I can keep up with the Joneses, well, you know the problem with that, don't you? Every time you catch up with the Joneses, they refinance. But that's the problem in a world where we put material things at the center of our existence. You may have read the story that made the newspaper some years ago about a young Greek couple and the personal loss they experienced. They had decided to go out to eat dinner in Athens. They didn't do that often because they had a young baby at home. And so they decided, we're going to just treat ourselves. And they hired a babysitter to come in and stay with their child. But because they didn't really know that much about the babysitter, they were a little bit leery, not so much about the welfare of their child, but about the most valuable thing that they had in their house, which was a diamond ring that the husband had bought for his wife and had spent quite some sum of money on it. In fact, had taken years to be able to pay it off, but they said, what are we going to do with the ring? We want to be able to put that someplace where she won't be able to find it. And so they thought the one place that no one will ever look for anything of value is in the garbage can. And so while they were going to dinner, they had put the ring in the bottom of the garbage can thinking that surely she won't look there. 
And while they were going to dinner, the garbage collecting truck came. You're ahead of me already. The babysitter threw the garbage out and unknowingly the diamond ring with it. Well, the picture that was carried in the newspapers, at least here in the United States, was a picture of a young couple scrambling through the garbage dump of Athens as they were frantically looking for that diamond ring. Garbage was piled high on each side of them as they made their way through the garbage of Athens looking for their treasure. Let me ask you, do material things really give us the kind of satisfaction that we want in our lives? What about that couple? If they had found the ring, they would certainly have been pleased. But would it have made them happy? At least happiness for the long haul? Could they say our our existence is now justified because we found that ring? Have you discovered that really material things don't give a great deal of security to life? Do they handle problems? Do they create more problems? In fact, some of you in the audience may be old enough to realize that the more you own, the more that you have to repair and maintain and worry about. No wonder Jesus, and you might notice if you still have your Bible open to Luke chapter 12, began this whole discussion with verse 15. Ray didn't read that because we didn't ask him to. But verse 15 is where Jesus says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. And then he began to tell the parable of the rich fool that is our text for this morning. Over the years since his death, Howard Hughes' entire life has been revealed and portrayed in literature and movies. In fact, you may have come to the same conclusion that I've come to. I know a whole lot more about Howard Hughes than I ever really wanted to know. But if you know anything about Howard Hughes, you know that this was an eccentric tycoon who amassed a great fortune during the course of his life, and when he died, he left millions and millions behind. In fact, he's the one that the story is told about while two servants were standing next to his graveside. One looked over at the other because there was some uncertainty about how much money Howard Hughes really did have when he died. So much of it had not yet been liquidated. It was in real estate and other things. And one servant looked at the other and said, reckon how much the old boy left behind. And the other servant immediately replied, every penny of it. And that's right. We will leave behind exactly what Howard Hughes left behind, every bit of it. But here's a fellow who had billions of dollars, and at that time, that was really saying something. But did they secure a meaningful life for Howard Hughes? Did they help him handle his problems in a better way? Did they cause him to control reality? Did his money secure his future? And if you know the story of Howard Hughes, you know that the answer to all of those questions is an absolute and emphatic no. The question, how can I handle my life, is answered in another way by the humanist who says... If you'll just put yourself at the center of your life, you'll be happy and you'll have meaning and purpose in life and you'll be fulfilled. After it's all, they tell us, it's it's only by looking after our own interests that we really can say that we've made it. The person who doesn't look after his own interests is going to get eaten alive in this world. Isn't that right? There are a number of, I think, interesting questions that come from this type of thinking. Are we really able to solve our our loneliness by putting ourselves at the center of our own universe? Is that the way we come to be loved by the people that are most important to us? 
Are we really able to solve our isolation from other people by placing ourselves at the core of our existence? Are we able to absolve our guilt that way? Are we really satisfied human beings because we make every decision and do everything possible to protect our own self-interest? Is that really the way that we find meaning and fulfillment and, and true happiness in life? If that is the case, then we have to ask ourselves, why are millions of America, Americans chronic alcoholics and opioid abusers in our day and time? And why are we constantly hearing about that abuse on the television news every night? Why are record numbers of people, including our young people, committing suicide? That's almost a daily occurrence anymore. Why are boredom and those kinds of despair in epidemic proportions in our nation? Why are depression and despair eating away at the lives of so many people? If it really is true, if you'll just put yourself at the center of your life, you'll have meaning and happiness. Is it possible? Is it possible that putting ourselves at the center of our lives, we're unable to be satisfied? I remember reading about a Christian couple who lost a child in a tragic automobile accident. It was a head-on collision. Their child was killed instantly in the crash. It took place over in the state of Arkansas, and this, they grieved at the death of their child, understandably. And this Christian father of this child drove all the way from the East Coast to Arkansas to visit the man in the hospital who had hit them head-on and killed their child. His intention when he got there was to say, You're forgiven. We don't hold grudges. And we want you to know that we're not holding this against you, that we don't hate you, and just to forgive him. But when he entered the hospital room, the television was blaring, and the man hardly paid him any attention at all. And he just kept watching TV and hardly said a word to the man who came to visit him. The man, when he did speak, indicated that the accident was just the breaks of the game, and that it was too bad that it had occurred. But what he was most concerned about and what he grumbled the most about was the fact that he was missing so much work by being laid up in the hospital bed. And I don't have to tell you that that Christian man walked away from that hospital room even with greater sadness than when he came in. His heart was even more broken because he had just met a man who had placed himself at the center of his own existence. I'm here to tell you what you already know, at least at some intuitive level. That living like that and having that perspective on life and having those world values won't make you happy. They won't satisfy you. They won't give you the purpose and the meaning that you're looking for in life because Scripture says so and even the parable that we're noticing this morning says so. When we, like the rich farmer in this text, when we start building barns for ourselves, then the writer is telling us that we're playing the fool's game because we have put at the center of our lives the very thing that really cannot remove guilt. It cannot bring us into healthy relationships with other people. It can't satisfy our loneliness. It cannot help us to cope with the problems of our day-to-day -day lives. There's one other question that we want to look at this morning because I think equally important is the third question that this young man asked and that we need to ask ourselves, and that is, what is my purpose in life? Is our purpose just to consume? If you believe the executives down on Madison Avenue, it is. Is our purpose to buy more cars, to buy more hair rents, more clothes, more electronics, more houses? Is our main purpose to get in good shape, to stay physically fit? Is that, is that why we're here? 
Is our purpose to have the latest style in our clothes? Or is it true if you listen to some commercials, if you just smell better, if you, if you wore the right fragrance, then you would have it made in life? You know, watching TV commercials causes us to come away with the impression that if our teeth were just whiter, and if our bodies didn't sag, and if we drove the latest model of car with all the bells and whistles, and if we had sex appeal, and everybody in town would think that we were a person who had made it, that we're a person who is now at the top of the heap. Is what we're being told when we watch an average of 34 hours of television a week, is it really true? We must, we must ask ourselves, is our purpose in life really just to consume goods and services? And is our purpose then simply to give birth to children who will come into this world and likewise be consumers themselves? Is that why we're living our lives? Is our sole purpose to dominate or to control other people? Is to walk around and brag because we're holding the biggest stick? And people are intimidated by us or they fear us. You know, it comes as no surprise that the men and the women who come to be presidents and CEOs of some of the largest corporations in America are dying in ever-increasingly rapid rates. It's very difficult, I read recently, for them, for the largest corporations in America at least, to be able to find someone to put at the top of that organization because they don't last long. There is a very quick burnout rate, and I don't mean just burnout, I'm ready to move to another job. I mean they're dying while in office because of the stress and the pressure. If you've read any of the issues of Fortune magazine, you know how many companies and corporations and large industries are without a president because big business is killing them off. So again, we have to ask ourselves the question, is that our purpose in life? Is it to be able to control other people and to will power? Well, these people would tell you no. Why do we do what we do when we live our lives? I want to end this discussion this morning with a real question. And that is simply this. When you get, when you get where you're going, where will you be? Isn't that a question that we need to be asking? What is it that you want most in life? And if you got that, where would you be when you arrived at that destination? You know, I talk to people every day. And if I know them well enough, I'll ask them if they have life goals. And if they tell me what their, those goals are, I will ask them that question. Okay, when you've gotten that goal, when you've accomplished that landmark in your life, where will you be? There are people who have the goal of going as far as they can, as high as they can in the political world. Well, when they get there, where will they be? Some preachers have as their goal to be a minister in certain pulpits at our, in our larger congregations. Well, if that happens for you, then where will you be? There are people who are literally selling their souls to get more money. Well, when they get more money, where will they be? Men and women all over the country are killing themselves to get to retirement. So you finally are retired. Now, where will you be? So we all need to ask ourselves, when I reach my goals, if I even have goals, where will I be then? God said to the man in the parable, if you'll look at the text one more time, this very night your life will be demanded from you. King James says your soul will be required of you. Is there not more to life than just things or ourself at the center of our existence or consuming the material things around us or domination or manipulation or the, the ability to wield power over other people? Is there someone so crucial that all of life is affected by him? Is there someone that I can come to know and have a relationship with in this life that will change my entire worldview and my perspective on what's most important in life? And the obvious answer to that is obviously yes. 
Is there someone who can free all of us from this self-inflicted pressure and people who are willing to kill themselves in increasing numbers simply because they've answered these questions in the wrong way? No life isn't worth living anymore. And yet when Jesus was telling this parable and helping those disciples 2,000 years ago, And helping us today as we sit down together and read this parable again to understand what life really is all about. I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is the role model. Going back to the story with which we began this particular lesson. The young man I told you about earlier, before he left the preacher's office, the preacher read him one more passage of scripture. In addition to the one that constitutes our text. Now, before reading it, though, he explained to that young man that Jesus Christ lived his life better than anybody who ever came before or who who has come since. And he said even unbelievers grant that his life was thoroughly consistent, that it was centered in a positive ethic, and that he has had more impact on, on people than any other person who has ever lived. And then he explained to that young man that Jesus is the secret to living the abundant life. He's the model of how we ought to be able and willing to live our lives to the very fullest. And having prefaced the point with those remarks, the preacher then read that young man this passage from John 13. I want to end with it this morning, specifically verses 3 through 5. The Bible says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. I want us to pull three quick things from that passage. First of all, Jesus clearly knew his origin. The passage says that he knew that he had come from God. And so it is with us. We need to understand that we were created in relationship to God. The Bible says in the opening pages of the book of Genesis that we were all created in his image. In fact, Psalm 8 says that we are created a little lower than the angels, a little lower than deity. So we are created in relation to the God who made us. What dignity and honor and esteem to know that our very origin is centered in the creative work of a sovereign God. Jesus knew where he came from. He knew his origin. But he also knew his destiny. The passage equally with clarity says that he knew that he was returning to God. You see, there's no sense of wasted motion. There's no confusion, there's no boredom, there's no frustration, there's no what am I doing here and I don't really know how I ought to be spending my days that marked the lifestyle of Jesus. Every moment of his life had meaning because he knew where he had come from and he also knew where he was going back to. He knew that life is best lived when one is living in the Father's will and that at the end of his or her life we can all be able to say, I'm just going back to the Father. I'm just going back home. And if you can do that, if you understand where you came from and you understand where you're going, everything in between will have some level of meaning. And speaking of in between, Jesus also knew his purpose. He not only knew his origin and his destiny, but this passage says that he knew his purpose because without question, Jesus knew what to do between his origin and his destiny. The Bible says, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. You see, Jesus' life, his existence, was personified in his service to others. Don't you think that there's an important lesson there? His service aimed at bringing people to the Father. Everything that he did was because he wanted people to know and to have a 
healthy, viable relationship with the same God who had created them. And we find his purpose statement in Luke chapter 19 in verse 10. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save those who are lost. You may be wondering, let's tie up some loose ends very quickly. Number one, the couple found the ring. And number two, you may be wondering how the story with the university student played out. The minister remembers to this day how intently that young student listened when they talked in his office that morning. And he could see that Jesus was attracting him and that his word was, was compelling him. And after agreeing to, to read the Gospels, the young man left the preacher's office. In a few days, he graduated with honors, and he left the West Coast. Their paths never crossed again. The minister will tell you that he feels confident that the power of Jesus Christ reached into his life and drew the heart of that young man. So it is with that in mind, I leave you this morning with these compelling words found in John 6 and verse 35. They're the words of Jesus himself, the one who knows how to live life and knows how we ought to be living our lives. Here's what he said. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. That's what we call you to this morning, while we stand, while we sing. To him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. I surrender, Lord, I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love and power, let Thy blessing fall on me. song to end on. Thank you for being here this morning. I want to encourage you to come back at five o'clock this afternoon. Andrew Kingsley will be speaking to